Thank you. That's not actually a recording device. He's timing me. <laughs> I'd forgotten quite how generous American introductions were. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Um, it, it was... It was two-way traffic all the time we were in D.C. It's continued to be two-way traffic, as I think Aaron and I have learned from each other in lots of different ways. And uh, he has certainly left his imprint uh, on my life, my ministry, my family. It's, it's tremendous to be here with you all. Thank you for allowing me to come and talk to you. I've been praying for this church since way before it began, um, as we had the privilege uh, with Aaron of discerning this call to Chicago and of then hearing about the preparations for the start of Emmanuel Anglican and then hearing about how you have begun. We're so grateful uh, to have been involved in that, thankful to God uh, for the partnership of the gospel between our two churches, Church of the Resurrection in D.C. and Emmanuel Anglican. It's been thrilling to hear how God has been blessing you guys um, and long may it continue. I hope you won't be distracted by the fact that I'm speaking English without an accent. Try to, try to put that out of your mind. Remember that this adds about 50 IQ points in terms of perception, not in terms of reality. Uh, so pay very close attention to what God's word says and only to me insofar as I'm telling you what God's word says. Um, as Aaron said, we're at the end here of a series on how Jesus' resurrection changes the whole of life about the way God showers us with good gifts because Jesus is risen from the dead. And so through the risen Jesus makes all of life significant and meaningful. Today we're going to be thinking about how through the risen Jesus, God makes our work meaningful. Uh, And uh, let me just say, actually, if you're visiting uh, this morning, uh, I'm visiting too. If you don't like it this morning, come back next week because it'll be better. (laughs) Um, If you do like it this week, come back next week because it'll be better. Uh, But for now, let's begin with a story by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. It's a short story that he wrote. And Niggle is a painter. He's a very, he's actually, he's a funny little guy, but his great passion in life is painting. He sees it as his great calling. And particularly, the thing he's really good at is painting leaves. But he's working on this huge canvas called the tree. It's supposed to be lifelike and life-size. It's a beautiful tree with highly detailed, every leaf perfectly crafted. He's trying to capture the sense of the wind rustling the leaves as it passes through the branches. There are birds nesting in the tree, spreading out to the side. There's a forest marching off into the distance. And then far away, the mountains are glimmering. The problem is he's not very good. He's he's, he's highly gifted at painting leaves, but the thing as a whole isn't all that impressive. Worse than that, he's constantly being distracted. Um, He has to do repairs on his house. He has friends who keep coming and visiting from out of town, and and inwardly he curses them in his heart. He's English, right? So visitors, that's what we do. (laughs) Worst of all, there's this neighbor called Parrish. He's very selfish, very self-centered, very demanding, very self-pitying, who's constantly distracting Niggle from his life's vocation, asking for these kind of trivial help in things that he could have done himself. It's highly frustrating. And then one day, Niggle has to go on a journey. It's Tolkien's metaphor for his death. He has to go on a long journey, and he leaves behind this half-finished canvas. His whole life's work, 
It's not that great. And it's unfinished. It's un it, the thing he's, he's, he's wanted to invest his life in and been constantly distracted from is left undone. And towards the end of the story, we overhear a conversation between a few of the uh, most important people in Niggle's town. They're talking about him. They're laughing about him. Um, do you remember that insignificant, that foolish little man, Niggle? And we learn in the conversation that they've taken his canvas and they've cut it up into pieces in order to patch a hole in the roof of Parrish's house. They've destroyed the whole painting except for one tiny little fragment, one beautiful little leaf, uh, which they put in a frame and they hang in the, uh, the town art gallery, the town museum. They hang it in an alcove with the title Leaf by Niggle. Very few people ever notice the painting when they visit the museum. Soon Niggle is completely forgotten. All that remains is this one beautiful little painting. Until one day, the museum, there's a fire, the museum burns down, and even that is destroyed. Niggle is completely forgotten. His life work is gone. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes right there. Chapter 1, verse 2. Solomon writes, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's the ESV translation. The NIV translates it meaningless. Meaningless, says the preacher. They're not actually brilliant translations. A better translation would be a little more concrete. Vapor. Vapor or mist. Mist, says the preacher. Mist. Mist, all is mist, all is vapor. And what Solomon is saying to us is that all of our life, and particularly we're thinking this morning about our work, under the sun, in this world, all of our life, all of our work is a vapor. We've got two points this morning, that's the first one. Under the sun, all of our work is a vapor. Think about a pan on the stove boiling. The water evaporates from it. And it's gone. Think about uh, the mist on the lake. And the sun gradually burns through it and it just disappears. That's what Solomon is saying. Our life is a vapor. Our life is a mist. It's here briefly. And then it's gone. Our work is a vapor. Our work is a mist. And then it's gone. Or think of it like this. Imagine you're in the shower in the morning. Uh, the bathroom has filled with steam. And it's that kind of I don't know if it's like this for you. For me, it's that hazy moment between being awake and being asleep when I'm at my most creative. You're feeling imaginative. The bathroom is full of steam, and you decide you're going to make a little sculpture in the shower. You scoop up a handful of the steam. And maybe you clump it together for a moment, and then with a whisk, it's gone. That's your work. That's your life. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors. All is vapor. And if it's true of our life, it's true of our work. In chapter 2, verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vapor. And striving after, or more literally, shepherding the wind. Those of you who ride a bike, you know what that's like, don't you? You, you turn a corner and suddenly you find you're cycling straight into the wind. And you wish you could be able to shepherd the wind and just kind of turn it around so it's blowing behind you to help you get home. Wouldn't it be great to be able to shepherd the wind? Well, that's what our work is like, says Solomon. It's a, it's a mist. It's soon gone. 
It's like shepherding the wind. It's like herding cats. How frustrating is our work? It's, it's vapor. It's shepherding the wind. And there is nothing to be gained by it. No leverage you can apply on life under the sun. Perhaps it's a very depressing thought for you. Perhaps you just kind of shrug and go, yep, that's, that's my reality. I can think of, off the top of my head, 20 people that I know uh, for whom this is the reality of work right now. It's a vapor. It's like shepherding the wind. If you gave me longer, I could think of 50 or 60 or 70 people who, in different ways, have this kind of frustration with their work. Perhaps you have no idea where your career is heading, what your career trajectory even should be. And so you feel it. Perhaps it's frustrating because you work for a difficult boss, and so each working day, in one way or another, is painful. Perhaps you look back on a lifetime of mistakes and failures and misfortunes, and you wonder what your working life has amounted to. Perhaps you spend... Well, you would like to spend your life on what you really think your calling is. You have a deep passion and great gifts in a particular area. Maybe you want to pursue a, a career, a creative career of some kind. Painting, music, uh, writing, acting. <laughs> but you have to pay the bills. And so you fill your working week with a, a boring, mundane job that fills your time, drains you of energy. And you have so little left over for what you're really passionate about. Perhaps you like your work, you enjoy it, but when you think about it, it doesn't seem all that significant. It seems really trivial and unimportant in the grand scheme of things. We need to be clear, as Solomon says this, as Solomon says, look, my work is, is a mist, it's a vapor, it's so frustrating. It's not because he's a failure. He's incredibly successful. In chapter 2, verse 4, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Chapter 2, verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He's a classic overachiever. And yet he lists... All of those achievements, and in the, the next breath, he turns around and he says, verse 11, I considered all my hands had done. I took a step back from all of my achievements. I looked at all the work, the toil I'd expended on it. And look, it was all vapor and shepherding the wind, and there was nothing to be gained, no leverage in life from it. And so he draws the only rational conclusion in verse 18. Maybe you can resonate with this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Verse 20, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Verse 23, all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. He works three different jobs and flops down into bed exhausted, worrying about how he's going to pay the bills. This also is vapor. And yet the very next thing he goes on to say is utterly extraordinary. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. 
How do those two things fit together? Solomon says, work is frustrating, work is hard, work is a vapor. So relax and enjoy it. How does that work? How is it possible to find pleasure in the work that you do? This brings us on to our second point. So the first point, under the sun, in this world, your work is a vapor. Second point, in the sun, S-O-N, your work is not in vain. In the sun, your work is not in vain. And Solomon, I think, gives us two reasons to think, actually, yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it doesn't last. Yes, it doesn't work out how we would want it to. Nevertheless, our work is good. Our work has value. Our work is not a waste of time. In the sun, our work is not in vain. Firstly, because it's a gift of God. End of verse 24, this also I saw is from the hand of God. So whatever your work is, whether you find it incredibly meaningful and fulfilling, whether you find it deeply frustrating, whether it's something that you try not to think about on the weekend and so Sunday morning thinking about it is really a bit depressing, whatever it is, it's a gift from the hand of your loving Heavenly Father. Your work is a gift from a God who promises that he will never give his children a stone when they ask for bread uh, or a scorpion when they ask for a fish. Your work, the work that you do each week, is a gift from a father who loves you, who is wise, who is good. Maybe your work at the moment, with all of its frustrations, is the biggest thing in your life that reminds you you are not sovereign in this world. You are not in control of the universe. God is sovereign. And he's wise. And he loves you. And he's given you this work to do. And so this work is good. To, to help us understand it, I think it's helpful if we think for a minute about the way Martin Luther talked about work and the vocation of Christians. Martin Luther was in a situation where he's trying to recover in the 16th century the, the dignity of the work of all Christians, not just of priests, saying that uh, the work of all Christians is God's gift to them and everyone has a calling in life. And he does it like this. He does it by taking us to the Lord's Prayer. And you know what it's like. When you, what you pray for shows what you really think is important, doesn't it? That's why so many of our prayers are so selfish. They show what you really... And the things you pray for again and again and again and again and again, they're the things that you really value. Well, Jesus gave us this prayer to pray again and again and again. So these are the things that Jesus thinks are really important, okay? And Luther says, right, think about this. Think about the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. How does God answer that prayer? He could do it by a miracle, couldn't he? He could just land bread on your table every morning. That's what he did for the Israelites in the wilderness. For 40 years, manna every day. He could do that for us, but it's not how he does it. How does God answer your prayer for daily bread? Well, he does it through the vocation of the farmer who grows the wheat, through the vocation of the baker who bakes the bread, through the vocation of the truck driver who drives it to the store, through the vocation of someone who stacks it on the shelves, through the vocation of the guy at the checkout. 
It's hard to imagine a, a more boring, depressing, mundane job than stacking shelves in the middle of the night at Walmart. And here's the extraordinary thing. It is, that, that job has remarkable dignity, not because they are serving you, although that's true, but because in that job, God is serving you. God is working in their work to serve you. God is working in their work to answer your prayer for daily bread. Our culture thinks of vocation a little bit like this. It says, find your gifts, find your passions, find the place where they intersect and pursue that with all of your energy and all of your strength. Have this kind of laser-like focus on your, your gifts, your passions, the things that, that energize you and give you life, and do it. How's that working out for you? Maybe for some of you, that's working out really well. You've found it. You've found your sweet spot. You have the circumstances where you can do it. If so, that is wonderful. Praise God for that. Enjoy it. Give him great thanks and get on with it. <laughs> My guess is for most of us, that's not the case, is it? Think about what's required for that view of vocation for a minute, though. Think about, of the 7 billion people on our planet, how many people have the freedom to pursue that kind of working lifestyle? Think about the kind of wealth that is required, the kind of educational opportunities that is required. Think about, you know, parents who invested in your education and encouraged you in it, um, an economy that is stable enough, uh, a country that is politically stable enough, a situation where you have a range of choices, where you have high social mobility, where you can leave your small town and move to a great city like Chicago and pursue your dreams. It's a profoundly culturally shaped view of vocation. And even if you can do it, remember what Solomon says. Your vocation, the stuff you love to do, is a vapor. It's actually not the way the Bible talks about our vocation. God isn't just concerned with the, the really energizing, joyful things that make us feel alive. God gives us work to do, and whatever the work is, he is working. He is working in our work. He gives it great dignity. You may be able to pursue your dreams. You may end up as a full-time writer. You may be able to be um, the president of a, of a non-profit. You may be able uh, to uh, go to graduate school. You may end up driving a UPS truck. But whatever your job, God is working in your work. There's another view of vocation that's more common among Christians, I think. It's, it's what I grew up with as a young Christian, um, a young adult Christian, which goes something like this. There's a kind of hierarchy of vocations. And right at the top, you've got missionaries, right? Because these are people who have sacrificed for God. They've moved to foreign countries. They've learned different languages. They're living in hard circumstances. We pray for them, we commission them, we raise money and support them. Just beneath a missionary is a pastor, right? If you're a pastor, you know you're doing God's work. Just beneath that, uh, there are doctors and nurses and teachers because they're helping people and making a real difference in the world. I think in our culture we would tend to add uh, people who are working in the arts, 
they're reflecting God's creativity, they're creating things of great beauty. We would add things like people who are pursuing justice in the world in one way or another. They, they fit in that on the grid somewhere. Everyone else, though, sorry you don't have a vocation, you just have a job. Sorry to break that to you. Um, but don't despair. Don't despair. Your job is important, too, because we need people to pay for all of the pastors and the missionaries. <laughs> and there are people, anyway, that your pastor can never meet, the people you work with, um, so you can run an evangelistic Bible study in your office, and that turns that into a place of value too. That is not the way God views our vocations. God is a God who created all things, visible and invisible. God is a God who made the whole world. Everything is his, and so there is no sacred secular divide. There is no hierarchy of vocations. All work, whatever it is. Bear in mind, by the way, that I'm speaking to you as a pastor who is a missionary, so I've arrived, okay? <laughs> you, know, you, can't, you can't get higher than me right now. <laughs> and it's not how God sees it. In the mom, who's at home changing diapers again, God is working in her work. In the guy who comes around each week and collects your trash, God is working in his work. In the woman selling insurance... God is working in her work. All of our work has incredible dignity because it is a gift, a good gift, from a God who loves us. But we need to take one more step because there's also the view among some Christians that there's the kind of spiritual stuff we do that lasts into eternity that therefore has unimaginable value and use. There's also the more mundane stuff that is for this world only that, that eventually will disappear. It's not valueless, but it's far less significant. I don't think that's right either. The second thing Solomon does, he, he says our work is a gift of God. The second thing he does is he takes us out from this world. He takes us out from under the sun. And he takes us ahead. He takes us on a journey to the end of time. The whole book of Ecclesiastes really is a journey, and uh, it's a journey under the sun, a journey in this world, showing again and again and again the frustrations of life in this world. But it's a journey with an ending place, and here's where it ends. In chapter 12 and verse 13, the, the end of the book, Solomon says this. This is where he's been heading all the way through. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. End of the book. Solomon takes us forward to the day of judgment. He takes us forward to the day of resurrection. When each one of us will be gathered by Jesus out of our graves and will stand before him and will give an account for our lives. Well, great, right? All of your work, all of your life is a vapor, and then God's going to judge you. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how Solomon intends us to receive it. Solomon is saying, everything you do in this world, everything that feels so brief and transitory and vaporous, 
is going to be evaluated by Jesus. He's going to look at all you've done and the way you've served him. And he's going to commend you for it. All of the bad things we've done, all of the secret things, all of the evil things, all of the wrong desires, of course, he's going to condemn those. But there are, there are good things too that he will take hold of and he will say, that is good. I am going to use that in my eternal kingdom. To see how it works, just take a look at that reading from 1 Corinthians. And take a look at the very last verse. 1 Corinthians 15 is this incredible chapter on the resurrection. Uh, all about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a wonderful kind of poetic ending, isn't it? It was so beautifully captured in that off-the-page reading. We'll not all sleep. We'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The dead will be raised imperishable. The trumpet should sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. It's so wonderful and romantic. Leave us there, Paul. Leave us with our imaginations captured. But no, Paul brings us crashing down to earth. Therefore, verse 58. Verse 58. You will be raised. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's like Paul has been meditating on the book of Ecclesiastes in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe he was there in Easter season and he's reading the book of Ecclesiastes and he's thinking, how does Jesus' resurrection change this? And you hear the echoes. Solomon says, under the sun, your work is a vapor. Your life is a vapor. It's all in vain. And Paul says, no. Jesus is risen. Therefore, nothing you do is in vain. Your work is not in vain. Our bodies, our bodies seem so solid, don't they? So real. Even my skinny little British body seems fairly solid and fairly real. Those of us who went to Millfire last night, that very moving play, we had a very, I mean, a remarkably moving reminder that that is not true. That one day our bodies will return to dust. One day, just a handful <coughs> of ash. This lectern feels fairly solid, and yet it's a vapor. One day this too will return to dust. And yet Paul says, Jesus is risen. Solomon says, there will be a judgment. One day, Jesus will reach down and he'll pick up that handful of dust. And he'll breathe life into it. And you'll stand before him. And he will evaluate all that you have done in the body. He'll evaluate your life. Everything that has been contained in it. He'll evaluate his whole creation. And he'll take all that you've done, all of the good things, all of the ways in which you've served him, including in your work, whatever it is. And he will gather it up and he will bring it into his kingdom to shine in the light of God's glory. Paul says, Jesus is risen. Nothing you do is in vain. So be always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
So Nigel dies. And eventually his painting is destroyed. And the important people in his city laugh about him, and then everyone forgets about him. That's not quite where the story ends. <coughs> Excuse me, the story ends. Uh, Tolkien shows us Niggle take his journey and then takes us to the end of the journey. He shows us Niggle's life on the other side of the grave. Niggle takes a long train journey, and then as he gets off the train, he finds his bike leaning against a gate. And this is how it goes on. Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long, he found that the path on which he had started had disappeared, and the bicycle was rolling over a marvellous turf. It was green and close, but he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or, or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other, the curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, it was becoming level, just as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun. Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms above his head. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he'd ever labored over were there as he'd imagined them rather than as he'd made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind and others that would have budded if only he'd had the time. Nothing was written on them. They were just exquisite leaves, but they were dated as clear as a calendar. Some of the most beautiful ones were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other, <coughs> excuse me, there was no other way of putting it. The birds were building in the tree, astonishing birds, how they sang. They were mating, hatching, growing wings and flying away, singing into the forest, even while he looked at them. For now he saw that the forest was there too. It was opening out on either side and marching away into the distance and the hills were glimmering far away. It's an allegory of our work in the light of Christ's resurrection. It's an allegory of what Jesus will do as he takes your work this week and sweeps it up into his eternal kingdom. So this week, do your work with a happy heart. Enjoy what God has given you to do. Because as you work, whatever it is you're doing, God is working through you to build his kingdom. And Jesus is risen. So in him, your work is not in vain. Let's pray. Our Father, you know us. Uh, you know our lives. You know our callings. You know how we work at the moment, where we work. 
what that looks like, who we work with, what we do, in minute detail. You know our feelings about it. The joys, the sorrows, the frustrations, the good, the bad, the ugly. We thank you that you know us. We trust you that you are a wise and loving father. And you've given even this to us. We pray for your grace. We pray for the, the strength of the Holy Spirit to work hard, to abound in the work of the Lord, to give ourselves fully to it with all our hearts. Help us to work with dignity, with integrity, with seriousness, with joy this week, knowing that our work is a good gift from you. We ask you to work through us to take what we do and make it useful. We thank you, we praise you that Jesus is risen. We trust you that therefore our work is not in vain. May this motivate us to work for you. For your name's sake. Amen.